everybody. Welcome back to the World Leader Podcast. So in today's episode, I'm interviewing Jason uh, Goldberg. Um, So Jason is an author, uh, a coach. He's also a comedy aficionado. So today he's going to be talking to us about his journey, his background, and uh, what took him to writing and how he thinks about the, the writing process. So Jason, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure, man. I've never been called a comedy aficionado, but I love that. I, I, yeah, I, I, own, <laughs> I own that 100%, man. I actually think sometimes I'm a bit of a comedy snob and I get crap from people on this. And, and there are parallels between this and the writing process, but like, I don't like improv because I, I love the spoken word and the written word. And I think when we take time to craft it, it's just, it's more entertaining to, to consume. So, uh, so it's funny you say that. I comedy aficionado and I turn my nose up at improv comedy. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, I, I just, I literally made that up uh, on the spot, but what you're saying about improv, because I used to do improv in high school. I really wasn't that great at it. At it. Uh, Nobody I is. think I'm good with words, but like, I like to, like, if I'm going to craft a joke, like it's going to require like careful attention and like surgical, like minutia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so no, I, I think, hear you. I think- I think improv is great for people to get out of their comfort zone and to like, just like not to get out of their heads and stuff, I think is great. But as an art form that I like to consume, I would prefer written stand-up comedy to improv all day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what, like, what took you, like, when did you, when did you realize you, you like comedy and humor? Was it always like part of your, part of your life? Like, were you like that, like since high school? It's, it was, it was all trauma based. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm partly kidding about that. So I have, uh, so growing up, I have some very funny family members. I have an uncle in particular who was, who was just extremely funny growing up. And we would have these family dinners with like, you know, my uncles and my mom and my grandparents and, and all the, you know, the cousins and everything. And it would be this like very serious, you know, Jewish, uh, traditional kind of dinner. And my uncle Bob would just be making fun of the thing the entire time. And my grandmother would get so upset and like, take this seriously. It's a serious thing and he just he was incapable of taking things seriously and and I think that rubbed off on me so much he had such quick wit and he was a little bit inappropriate and a little bit irreverent and I think that rubbed off on me uh, and then I realized that I ended up somehow developing kind of a comedic prowess I, I was kind of a funny kid and in a time where I was also the kind of the fat kid who was getting picked on being funny was a way that I could actually create connection with people and, uh, and feel like I was enough. So it's partially based on family and partially based on trauma uh, that brought me so much into comedy. Mm, yeah, that's, yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. And, you know, it's interesting what you mentioned about, uh, so like your Jewish family, uh, it's funny. I don't know if it's, maybe it's just like my experience, but a lot of like the funniest people I know, they're Jewish. And one time I was at the, I was, I think it was, yeah, it was a Jewish museum in Philadelphia. And I, I saw this book about like a, like the Jewish sense of humor. And so I bought it. I haven't read it yet, uh, but it's, it's on the list. And so I don't know, like if you have any thoughts, like uh, do, you, do you think there's like such a thing as like a Jewish sense of humor? Like for me, like I often feel like it's very, um, you know, they laugh a lot about themselves. It's very like, um, uh, it's very incisive. It's, uh, I, I don't know, it's just like random, but like, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm just curious. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think there is something to that, and, and the self-deprecation uh, in, in that kind of comedy. I, I think it's um, I think that the the Jewish the caricature of of Jews in general is that you know we we uh, we struggle a lot, or or we 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 have a lot of guilt and a lot of suffering, and comedy comes from pain a lot of times. So uh, it could be that the self-inflicted uh, pressure and suffering that we sometimes experience as Jewish people leads to more comedy. Uh, but I think there is something there. I think that there is you know I'm I'm not a religious person whatsoever. I'm not a practicing Jew. I always tell people I'm Jew-ish, like I'm not exactly <laughs> a full-blown Jew. Uh, and, and there's just something interesting about the Jews that I grew up with, at least, is that they never really cared to make their religion the best religion or the one that everybody should follow. They're like, you do what you do, I do what I do, and we're fine. Uh, they'll, they'll judge the crap out of you for how you parked your car in the parking lot, <laughs> how you took up two spaces, but they don't really care what religion you are. So there's just something about like irreverence uh, towards the things that everybody else thinks is serious and seriousness towards things that most people think are unimportant. Yeah, that's fascinating. So do you wanna tell us a little bit more about um, your background? So. Like we said you're a coach, you're an author. Um, so what took you to coaching? I was reading a passage from your book 
uh, prison break. And so I was reading that, that um, infamous uh, Amazon episode where you were selling your corporate job. So do you want to walk us through a little bit about uh, your background, like where you're coming from? Yeah, yeah. So I spent at least professionally. I mean, personally, I was I was raised by a single mother, single Jewish mother, of course, uh, and uh, no no siblings or anything. So it was just the the two of us. And um, I, you know, was always kind of the class clown and 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 kind of the center of attention. Got into uh, tech, like geeky kind of stuff when I was fairly young, and I was probably like maybe twelve years old. I started getting into tech kind of stuff, and I have another uncle who was kind of in the tech space. And, uh, and I kind of went all into that. So for the better part of 15 years, I was in corporate IT. Um, the last seven of those years, I was in IT consulting. Uh, and, uh, and it was a great career, made good money. It was challenging. Um, but it was also, you know, I was while I was being successful in that profession, I was dealing with a lot of mental health stuff. And I, and I had, since I was a kid, because of being picked on and being bullied and being the fat kid and all these things, uh, I dealt with a lot of depression, uh, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. Uh, I had suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation into my late twenties. Um, I was on antidepressants from the time I was a, 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 a teenager, a high school teenager, uh, again, up until kind of my late twenties, early thirties. And, uh, and it was just kind of a really uh, stressful, struggling time. And that manifested itself also in the way I tried to self-soothe, which was through food. And so food became such a part of my life that I, I, my weight kind of got out of control. And I ended up getting up to 332 pounds by the time I was 29 years old. So pretty, pretty big, pretty dangerously overweight. Um, and acid, least. Say again. Were you a foodie at least? I wasn't, I wasn't really a foodie. No, no, no. It was, oh, it, was no. All, it was, it was all shit. It was like all the worst, <laughs> the worst part. I would love to be like, yes, I tasted all the finer things in life. It was like, no McDonald's, Burger King, Kentucky fried chicken, pizza hut, Taco Bell. Those are my, those are my five-star Michelin restaurants. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, I just had, you know, that was my way of self-soothing. And so the, the passage you're talking about from the book is kind of uh, the first chapter of the book, kind of setting the stage for for my own transformation and what became the backdrop for all the rest of the stories and, and distinctions and concepts that I share throughout the book was when I tried to make a, a purchase on my credit card, uh, 29 years old, making well over six figures in my corporate job. And I tried to make like a $60, $70 purchase of socks on Amazon, like funky socks, because that's kind of my thing. I'm into it. And uh, my card got declined. And, and long story short, you can read the, the chapter if you want to get the whole thing. But long story short, my bank had cut off my my card. They cut off access to my money in the account because there were some like possibly suspicious fraudulent activity on my account. Uh, and that suspicious activity was actually just me eating at four fast food restaurants in one day. And the bank saying, well, there's no way a real human would eat at four fast food restaurants in a single day. This, this must be a fraudulent charge, but it wasn't a fraudulent charge. It actually was me. So that was kind of my, my first time where I finally listened to the messages that I had been getting for decades in my life, that something needed to change in the way that I was approaching life and that I was being way too much of a prisoner and a victim in my life and not taking control. And that's what kind of started my entire journey on this personal growth, human optimization, mental health uh, uh, adventure to uh, take back control of, of my experience of life. Mm, that's awesome. And so that ultimately led you to becoming a coach yourself. So after you know going through that personal development journey, helping others go through a personal development journey of their own as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's, it's like one of these things, man, when like if you go to a restaurant that's just amazing and you just have the best experience in the world, you got to tell all your friends about it. You're like, we got to go check out this restaurant. It was amazing. I had the best steak or I had the best. If you're a vegan in LA, I had the best, I don't know, soy coconut curry with tempeh, I, I, whatever the fuck people eat. But like, you know, you, when you have this experience, you want everybody to know about it. So for me, it was just like, I'd always been somebody who wanted to be of service and, and to contribute. And this just felt like a really uh, um, easy way, conceptually easy way to get out there and be of service is to take the transformation I had and try to see if I could facilitate that for other people. Mm. And so you, you published that book, Prison Break in 2016. Yep. Um, and what what role did writing play in your life before before you wrote and published that book? Was it already was it always like a part of your um, of your life or your profession as a coach? Did you do a lot of writing before before undertaking that project? 
Yeah, I always, and I think this probably comes from my uncle, uh, my uncle Philip, who's my mom's twin brother, who, who was a big part of my life growing up, not having a father. And he, he was a published author way before you could self-publish. Like he had actual traditional publishing deals uh, in, in the self-help world around relationships and breakups and things like that. Uh, he did some fiction and nonfiction work. And I remember from a very young age when I would like write stories, short stories and give them to him and he would break out the red pen and, and you know, go through it as, as like a kid. And so I really developed this, this fondness uh, and this love for for language and for for structure of language and for storytelling and all these things. And I didn't know, I didn't have the language back then to know that's what I loved, but I just kind of loved words. Uh, and I think that that continued on and where I really, really think that my 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 gift of language started to blossom was when I started rapping. Because when I got into rap, I, I wanted to be so intentional with my words and I wanted to have this multi-syllable wordplay going on and these really innovative, you know, uh, uh, nested kind of punchlines. And, and so it really forced me to, to hone in and zero in on the craft of word choice, storytelling and constructing that all together. And I think that played a huge part of me being able to write the book. Mm. And so what was your process like for writing the book? How long did it take you? And, you know, how did you, how did you structure your process? Yeah, so my my inspiration for for the creative process as it relates to book writing is my my dear friend and my coach. He's been my coach for seven years now, uh, six or seven years. Is uh, Steve Chandler? I'm not sure if you're familiar with Steve Chandler or not. Yeah, so he's amazing. He's written I don't know 40, 40 something books. He didn't even start writing until he was in his late forties, and he's written forty plus books, and they're amazing. Uh, but he has this thing. I, I don't know if it's his term or not, but he introduced me to it. Was that he writes his books, uh, especially his nonfiction books as a as a mosaicist as, as a mosaic basically and so what that means uh in, in the way that he uh, described it to me was these you know bite-sized chapters uh bite-sized nuggets of wisdom that are self-contained you don't necessarily have to have read the chapter before or to read the chapter after you can open the thing read a few pages takes you 10 or 15 minutes and you feel it feel like you got something out of it and so for me that became my process like what are these small distinctions distinctions are a big part of, of my work what are these small simple distinctions distinctions? Uh, what are these, these ideas, these stories, these concepts that can be made into bite-sized form um, that when put together, create this beautiful mosaic, this beautiful tapestry uh, of, of, of a journey of self-growth. And then of course, it's then my job afterwards to go back and make sure there's a golden thread that's kind of woven through all of those and make sure that there's an opening chapter and a closing chapter that, that are, are good to set the stage and to, and to close the context. Uh, but, but that became the thing. So for me, I knew that I wanted to send uh, weekly newsletters to my, to my email list anyways. And so I started kind of setting a little bit of a, an internal accountability structure for myself, more of a game than anything else, where I was like, well, you got to write something for your list every week anyways. Let's use this as a testing ground for the things you want to put in the book. And so I started basically writing a chapter every week uh, and sending it out to my list and then seeing what they responded to and what they didn't respond to, seeing what they liked and what they didn't like. And the things they really liked, I set it aside and said, cool, that's going to go in the book. Uh, the things they didn't seem to like as much, if I liked them, they still went in the book. But if, if not, I was like, okay, maybe this is not something for the book. And that was, that was probably how 70% of the book was written, was me just testing these weekly newsletters and then massaging them and ending up putting them in the book afterwards. Awesome. And so if, if somebody listening to this uh, wanted to kind of replicate that process, um, how did you, like, what was the call to action, if any, like, how would you know what people responded? Did you like uh, prompt them to reply to your email or like, how did, how did that work? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think any email you're sending to your list, if you're sending out emails, there should be some kind of call to action. Uh, one of the challenges with content being shared uh, on social media nowadays, and, and I'll include newsletters as social media uh, in so much as it's, it's digital communication, is that most of the stuff people are sharing is a monologue instead of a dialogue. And I think that's a big responsibility that if you, if you want to actually create transformation and create more intimacy with your audience, you need to be thinking about how you can create a dialogue and not a monologue. And so my newsletters always had some kind of call to action, something to reflect upon, something to reply back and let me know about, something that makes it into a conversation. Uh, so yeah, there was always some kind of call to action. You don't have to be a big thing, but just something that brings them into the conversation. Mm, that's awesome. So basically you are getting constant feedback on whatever you were writing as you were progressing through the, the book writing process. Yeah. Yeah. It was getting real time feedback. And, and I mean, and it's, and this is not like uh, for anybody listening, like, Oh, well, you know, if you have a 10,000 person email list, I'm like, no, I probably had like 
50 people, a hundred people. It's like, it wasn't like I had this huge email list. And so it wasn't like I was getting a hundred people writing back, but if you get two people that write back in now, you know, it, nowadays, even back then in 2015, 2016, people writing back to an email to a list is a pretty big deal. Not a lot of people do it. So even if you get two people writing back, that's a good sign that you move them enough that they actually took the action to take time out of their day and energy out of their fingers to reply back to you. Yeah. So what you're saying is you don't have to be James Clear with like a huge like newsletter. And <laughs> Not at all. It's such a misconception that, uh, that you have to have some big list or some big audience in order to put something out and make a difference in the world. And, uh, it's, it's not to say that having a big list doesn't help with that. Uh, but, uh, but it's not a prerequisite by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. It, it's funny as an aside, cause I just, I recently, um, read James Clear's Atomic Habit and, yeah. uh, I'm also a big fan of Ryan Holiday and I listen to his podcast and, um, Um, he interviewed him recently and so he was saying how like James Clear was uh, writing his newsletter every week and like didn't know that he wanted to like write a book and like he asked like Ryan Holiday a question during one of his talks and like why would even like why would I even want to write a book and so it looks like Ryan Holiday was was somewhat persuasive because then now we 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 got this yep That is very true. Well, you know, and it's funny, it's funny you bring up Ryan Holiday. I'm a big Ryan Holiday fan. Uh, I'm actually a bigger fan of his work on the creative process than I am on his stoicism. Uh, yeah. work. His stoicism work is great too, but Perennial Seller to me was an incredible book. Uh, it was mm -hmm. such a, such a good book. And one of the things he says in there, which uh, I'm sure your, your audience can relate to, he says, a lot of people want to have a book, but not a lot of people want to write a book right? Yeah. There, there's oh, a difference. Yeah. There's a difference. And yeah. so the, the, the gla any glamour that anybody thinks there is in the creative process is very short-lived yeah. at best. Uh, it's not a glamorous thing at all. It is not something where uh, I am very rarely excited to sit down to write uh, unless I have like a really clear, powerful idea that's just like coming through me. But for me, like when I get writer's block, It's not a, it's not a happy thing. I'm not excited about it. And I know now what to do about it when I have writer's block and we can talk about that if you want to, but, but it's not a glamorous thing. So if you're, if you're going to write a book, do it because you can't not write it. Uh, don't do it because you think there's some glamorous reason to be doing it. Yeah. It's, I mean, a lot of people are talking about like writing versus having written and most people want to have written and You know, obviously there's always like the sense of pride and the sense of satisfaction from having written, but you know, it's, it's just like anything else in life where you really have to fall in love with the process. And like you said, like a lot of the time like the process isn't glamorous, but that's one of my, my strongest ideals that, you know, as much as you're teaching your audience when you're writing, you're learning from the writing process about what you do. And this is why I'm, such a strong believer that, you know, people shouldn't wait to like not be busy or like retire or like any, anything to like write their book. If they have it in them, they should do it because they're going to learn so much and become so much better at what they do through the writing process. Because like you said, it's not glamorous. It's, it's hard. And some nights you're just like, Ugh. and you know, I mean, I write a lot and sometimes I'm just like, how do I create a bridge like between these two things? And it's like, it's annoying. And then obviously you find out like in the shower or like, while well, you like take a walk. Yeah. Um, it's and like, that's key, right? The space, yeah. the space is, is really key. And sometimes that's a part of my creative process, especially when I have writer's block. Uh, you know, what I'll, what I'll do initially. So here, here's my thing. When I get writer's block, what I do initially is the, is the ineffective thing. And then eventually I remember that I'm doing something stupid and I do a more effective thing instead. So the stupid thing I do, and it's not actually stupid, but it's, it feels stupid in, in hindsight, or in retrospect, I should say. Um, and and what, the, what I do there is I say, okay, uh, I'm going to go back and look at all the different notes that I have from other things that I've written. And that's going to inspire me. And sometimes it does. Uh, but what happens ultimately is that when I go back through and I do keep a swipe file, I have, I always keep a swipe file. I have hundreds of ideas in my swipe file. So inevitably I could go back and look at that and try to pull something, but the entitled part of my brain says, no, that's old. You need to come up with something brand new that you've never put on paper before. And that's so stupid. Like it's so dumb that I think I can't go back to an idea that I've already talked about or already thought about talking about. Uh, it's just, it's, it's dumb to think that I can't go back to that. So, so when I'm at my best, I'll do one of two things. Number one, I'll go back and look at content either I've already created or content that I've wanted to create and ask myself, how can I just expand on that? 
release this, this belief that I have to come up with something brand new that I've never thought of before, because that's not helpful. The second thing I'll do though, is whether I have that idea or not, is just take some space. This morning, for example, like I, I, I uh, for my podcast, I do solo episodes and I do uh, guest interviews. And so my next solo one, I need to write. And I've just been kind of blocked on what it was going to be. Just had no idea. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I was sitting there yesterday trying to like force myself to come up with an idea, stupid, uh, stupid for me, putting too much significance, too much, putting too much pressure on it. And so uh, part of my creative process for that today was to sit on my balcony and drink coffee mm. and to release myself from any need to come up with any ideas yeah. and to be completely okay with the fact that I may come up with nothing. And within three minutes, a fully formed idea showed up. And now I know exactly what I'm going to talk about on the podcast. It's just, so sometimes the space is just really, really key. Yeah, no, I, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I'm big on repurposing content from, you know, yeah. podcasts to like mailing lists to like uh, Facebook, like all kinds of social media, obviously you never want to, um, you know, publish the same thing over and over on different channels. But at the end of the day, I find it's like, there's literally like one idea we have that takes like different, different forms and we can talk about it in different ways. But, you know, there's only so much that we, that we end up talking about. Like maybe there are like a few ideas that, that we have, but at the end of the day, we're always like, we're kind of like always like saying the same thing, but like looking at it from a different angle, applying it to a different thing. And so I agree with you that uh, we should give ourselves permission to go back to the old stuff uh, one project that I'm working on, well, I'm not really working on, but uh, uh, <laughs> I will uh, shortly enough is that all the podcast episodes that I did with the World Leader Podcast, you know, I talk about something for five minutes, um, but the theme, and so I have like a little blurb. So I want to start from these little blurbs and expand on it, like just short chapters and make that a book and call it the World Leader. And so it's, it's repurposing at its best. But the thing is people that, listen to your podcast or that read your newsletter or that read your book or that read your Facebook post. Um, not everybody will like read it uh, in one place. And so I find it super important. You, you know, you have people that prefer video. You have people that prefer audio. Some people prefer reading. So there's nothing wrong with repurposing content. And even like, you know, you look at the great writers and authors and oftentimes it's like, they literally just like, say the same thing over and over again in like a different way. Um, the first book I ever wrote was a fiction novel. So it was a psychological thriller and I'm writing a nonfiction book and I have another fiction uh, book in the work. And I realized it's like, it's always the same like underlying concerns or questions that like make me who I am that I'm like talking about in a different way. And like people wouldn't necessarily see that as the same thing, but it, it starts from the same place. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I actually went as far uh, before the world shut down. One of the last, was it the last talk? It may have been the last talk I gave before the world shut down as far as a live talk. Uh, I was in Seattle for this, this event with uh, six or 700 um, travel, travel planners, uh, travel agent, travel planners. And, uh, and, and I had never done this before, but I, I kind of went up there and opened the kimono and told them what I was about to do. And I said, listen, here's what we're going to be doing over the next hour. Uh, pretend that I told you that getting five servings of greens every day was the way for you to live until you're 100 years old. That's the main premise. Then I would spend the rest of the time telling you, here are different ways you can get your five greens servings per day. You could have a smoothie. You could have a big green salad. You could have, you know, you could juice it. You could eat raw vegetables. I'm going to give you all these different options. And one of them, I hope, will stick. Right. So as you're listening, you're like, yeah, I don't really do big salads. Yeah. Raw, raw vegetables doesn't sound good. Oh, a smoothie. Okay. I could do a smoothie. That sounds good. So, so we're doing the same thing. Have your core message or, or maybe you have three. I typically, I, I like to have like three content buckets, but even if you have one main core message, have your core message and then ask yourself, what are the different angles and perspectives I can share? Because some people are going to really hit on one particular distinction or one particular metaphor and other people that's not going to make any sense to them. But then when you say it again in this other different way, they go, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. So if my job and if I believe my job is to communicate an idea that has the, the power to facilitate transformation, then I don't care what form that idea delivery takes. I just care that it lands at some point with the people who are listening to it or reading it or watching it. 
So I'm totally fine with doing that. You look at somebody like Byron Katie, who's, you know, one of my top three spiritual mentors. She's literally has one message and four questions and one tiny methodology that she has written all these books on and does hundreds of seminars and all off of one idea that she just keeps repackaging over and over. And it's super helpful to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, you have different audiences sometimes and they have like different ways of like how they want to be talked about this idea. And are you familiar with the book, the uh, blue ocean strategy? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean that, like when I read that book, it's just like everything clicked both like for my business, but for my writing also. And I realized that, you know, um, my work as a, as a, as a writing coach is like an adv advocate for like grammar and like good writing. It's really, um, you know, thinking about it through that framework. It's really, for me, it's like, it's writing like the technical skill, it's business. So like, um, like the career, the business opportunities that come with writing, but also the personal development. And so uh, the personal development that comes with writing. And so for me, it's like, whatever, whatever I say, whatever I do, it always has to do with either of these three buckets, but the message is the same. It's like good writing is important. Good writing will like make you the most compelling version of yourself and then apply it to whichever bucket you're the most interested um, and then you have a recipe for like unlimited content. <laughs> like you can just like ramble on and on and on. Yep. That is so true, man. It's so, so true. I love that you said that. And, and I'm actually just, and just to go back to something you said earlier, I have absolutely repurposed exact pieces of content that I've, that I've posted and shared before, because if I shared something two or three years ago, there's a ton of people who are following me now that weren't following me two or three years ago. So I don't want to be in this place of like, oh, well, I already shared that. So it, it, I shouldn't share it again. The absolute worst that can happen is that somebody two or three years ago who read it sees it again, which I can almost guarantee they will not remember they read it because I'm not as important mm -hmm. as I think I am sometimes. And they'll either see it again and be like, oh, that's a really powerful piece that really resonated with me and not remember at all. They read it yeah. or they'll say, oh, I remember this from a long time ago. That was really helpful then. I'm glad yeah. it's here so I can get the reminder. And if it's really great content, they'll learn something that they didn't see. It's like when you watch like some of the greatest movies you watch uh, and there's this movie I, I rewatch every so often. It's called Enemy by this like Canadian director, Dennis Villeneuve. But like um, I watched it like the first time and it's like uh it's a complicated movie like it's very intellectual and so the first time I was confused the second time it's like I learned something the third time I learned something else and then the fourth time I was like god damn it like I didn't realize this was all about masculinity how did I not know wow that's and, so uh, funny <laughs> and uh, you know and especially like because people and I, I think there's something to be said also about you know people like will retain maybe 20 percent of like especially if it's a book like in a post, for example, there's like one main idea is very like short to the point, but like in a book, there's, there's certainly so much that they'll remember. And so uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with like repackaging and rewriting and writing like for different audiences. Um, and like you said, yeah, maybe someone will remember, but like if it's really great content, they'll learn something more because that's the best thing about writing, you can always, you know, the best books, like um, I, I read a while back, um, what is it? That's the Eckhart Tolle's book. Uh, power of Now? No, not The Power of Now, the other, uh, A New Earth. Oh, New Earth, yeah. And um, no, I need to reread it because I know like it, it changed me, but like I know that is the kind of book that needs to be reread. And I feel like Eckhart Tolle is one of these people that just, you know, it's there's this one message and it's just like, you know, blasted everywhere in like different shapes and forms. And that's, that's the best thing you can do because especially when you're dealing with like extraordinarily complicated ideas, uh, the best thing you can do is, you know, put them everywhere so that people can retain them. The more, you know, it's, it's like marketing, the more often, like more often you, you hear something, the more it sticks, you know? Yeah. Like, thousand percent yeah absolutely yeah it's like why why did like why were why were people like drinking fenta in the early 2000s because they kept blasting their damn ad yep <laughs> repetition man repetition yeah. will get it every time but it's great i think it's i think it's good to do that though i think I, like i said i've never had i've never once had anybody say i can't believe you reposted that thing that you posted two years ago i've i've had only the opposite happen yeah. uh, where people say oh man i totally forgot about this i'm so happy you reposted it yeah, or you change the headline or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that you mentioned earlier, I thought was interesting, um, the process that you you learned from uh, Steve Chandler. 
um, about like writing these like short chapters with like, um, I, you didn't say that word, but like to me, it's basically like, it's what I call like writing with, with wisdom, so to say, and like being, being quotable. Cause I always like to think it's like, why do we just like keep quoting like those like old Greek guys like Plato and Aristotle? Like, why do we see them everywhere? Well, it's because you know what they said and that's what makes for a great quote. It's understandable even without context. Yeah. And so, and so I really like that. And one thing that I, that I try to emphasize in my teaching, and it's kind of like looking at it like on an axis of like data versus wisdom and like data is just like very dry and like you can go like really deep in data, but you can also go and, you know, you have to have the context, but when you write with wisdom, it's like you've done all the processing and then you can say something that's like, will be universally understandable. And so it would be kind of like looking at an academic article on like, I don't know, like um, self-talk psychology versus like reading a book by let's say like Tony Robbins, you know, instead of looking at all the quantitative data, you'll just have like, like compelling sentences as like that sticks. Um, and so I really like that, that aspect of the, the process that, that you talked about. And I think it makes for great books. Um, you know, sometimes people want to read like something, uh, like a thick book that has like a lot of unity. Sometimes they just want to read something like they can pick a page. Like uh, we were talking about Ryan Holiday, the Daily Stoic. You can just open a page every single day, and it's a it's a different kind of consumption. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's writing for insight, which is not which is not always easy to do. I mean, you have to really. I feel like you have to you have to embody. Uh, and and know what it is you're writing about at a deeper level when you write for insight because there's not as much room to expand. Um, and I, and I think that the majority of books, at least the ones that I've read, are probably thirty percent longer than they have to be. I think sometimes people just want to fill out the space uh, yeah. for whatever reason. And sometimes it's it's good information, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it feeds. Uh, you know, it's not a servant that feeds the master of the main point that is trying to be driven home. It's just kind of extra fluff, uh, uh, usable fluff, but not necessarily usable. The most usable thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's, I think if you can write, if you can try to practice writing for insight, that can be really powerful. Yeah. And it's, I, I think, I think part of what makes it so difficult is that when you write for insight, you have to like take more general stances. You have to go sometimes a little like wider as opposed and deeper to kind of give the full portrait. And so I feel that because I'm that kind of writer. And sometimes I'm like, oh, like I could be, I could be wrong. And I could be like way wrong. And you're like, oh, shoot. But then what you have to realize, and it really depends on like your purposes. And it's like you start imagining like all the, the different ways in which your book could get like ripped apart uh, by like everybody, by the academics, by the, by the gurus, by the, by the readers, you know. But anyway, uh, you know, but then you have to have the courage to like take those stances and be a, sometimes a little more general because then it makes it more universal. It makes it more understandable for the readers. And sometimes you have to make those sacrifices. I don't know if that's something that you've experienced yourself. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, I think there's, I think there's two things to be aware of when you, when, when you're, you know, writing for insight or doing things like this and worrying about it getting ripped apart and, and all these things. Uh, number one is that I'm, I'm an expert in one thing and it's my experience of my own life. Right. So people can disagree with that all day long. It's fine. It's not their experience of life. So when I get up on stage and say, you know, at 332 pounds, I was the most depressed, anxious, stressed, suicidal person in the world. Somebody in the, in the crowd could stand up and say, well, I'm 400 pounds and I've never been happier. And I wouldn't be like, oh, my God. Oh my God, I'm wrong. I'm, I, everything I wrote is wrong. It's just like, cool. I'm really happy that at 400 pounds, your experience is happiness. My experience at 332 pounds was not happiness. And that's all I'm sharing. So that's number one. But number two is what if we look at what we're writing? And this is obviously very specific to like a, a self-help or a nonfiction book around, you know, personal growth or things like that. But, uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's an actual academic paper, that's a different story or an academic book. But, uh, but what I want to think about is that this book is the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm not putting stuff down saying this is law. I'm saying this is something to inquire and to see how or if it applies in your own life, to see if there are implications and applications for you. And if there aren't, or if it hasn't really 
you know, landed for you. Let's have a conversation about it. I, I am skeptical as shit about everything that I write. And that's why I keep doing the work on myself to continue making sure that it still works. Right. So I think everybody should do the same when they read stuff. Yeah. And especially when it's more experience based, I feel like, you know, you publish a book or like you, you give a talk or, you know, you, you put out words in the world. It's kind of like casting a net and it's like, you're going to get some fishes and uh, well, it, it's not a perfect analogy because like the fishes don't want to come when you're casting a net, but let's just assume that they want in, um, <laughs> you know, they're going to, you know, you're going to get some people and some people are just get, not going to resonate, but it doesn't matter because you'll never be able to, you know, reach everybody anyway. And so, you know, just to go back to your, uh, what you were talking about, um, you know, giving that talk, talking about like how you were like 300 something pounds and, you know, were miserable and depressed and this other guy is not. Well, there probably is somebody in that crowd that maybe was where you were or is 330 pounds and, uh, and absolutely depressed and miserable. And so that will have a, an effect. And, you know, uh, taking it back to like comedy, it's like, um, when you crack a joke, like an inside joke you know, like that, only a few people will understand, like a lot, like fewer people will laugh, but men, they will laugh so hard. And that's like, honestly, to me, like, I find it even better than like, I'd rather like <clears throat> make like three people laugh and like they laugh really hard than like make 30 people laugh. Because what's funny about these jokes is that they're like, they know they have privileged knowledge. And like yeah. they laugh because they know the stuff. So it's just like, it makes it like absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and a lot of it the same way. Yeah. And a lot of comedy will, will fail miserably. I mean, like I, I always say like probably 80% of the comedy that comes out of my mouth when I'm on stage is in the moment. It's not, there are some jokes that are always planned, but, but for the most part, it just kind of just comes out and there, and I don't have a great filter on that stuff. I mean, I try my best not to be like, uh, insensitive, but, but I don't typically have a real filter on that. And I remember a talk that I was giving, um, where I said something and, and what came out of my mouth was like, uh, I did some kind of like, uh, Valley girl kind of accent. Like, Oh my God, Becky, I can't believe you did that. Or like something like that. And the majority of the room is laughing. And I hear this woman in the front row go, well, that was rude. <laughs> I, 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 I can actually, cause she's right in the front row. This is like, you know, 500 people in this room and I can hear her. And, and, and in my mind, in that moment, it's just like, I'm, I'm so happy that I don't have to go home with that woman because she has such a, uh, a block around allowing anything to be funny without being offended. Uh, there's no way I could have pleased her. She would have found a way to be offended by something I was going to say at some point. Yeah. So I may as well get it out of the way. But you the rest of the room was like, huh? You think she was a valley girl? Um, no, I, I don't think she was like a, a middle-aged woman. I don't, I don't think she was a, she, I think she was probably like in her fifties or something. I don't oh, okay. Maybe her daughter was a, a Valley girl. Uh, so, uh, but whatever it is, that, but, but even still, whatever it is, whether she has a person in her life that sounds like that, or whether she sounds like that, that, that is her. Uh, if I had told a joke about somebody else with a different accent, she would have laughed. And, and so the question becomes like, am I going to be the kind of person that's either offended by everything uh, or offended by nothing? But if I choose the middle ground, uh, that's when it gets a little weird. Yeah. And what I, you know, I realized that like way back and, you know, that's something I, I, I wish I would have realized even sooner because it, it's very liberating, but it's like, you know, there's only one way to be funny and it's really just to like fail miserably a lot. And it's like people like some people think I'm funny and I always tell them like, there's only one way to crack good jokes, like to crack bad ones. It's like, it's a numbers game, right? Yeah. I'll tell like, to, uh, well, I don't know what my like good jokes rate is, but maybe it's like 50%, maybe it's like 40 or 60. I'll crack like a couple of bad jokes. But then what I realized is, you know, people will remember when they, you make them laugh really hard, but they don't actually remember like the stupid jokes. And like, when you say something like borderline offensive or like when you just like your jokes fall flat, like no one has like the, the, the bandwidth or like the, the memory to remember that stuff. And so, yeah, they might judge you on the moment, but it's like, you know, and it's like, I always try to think like, when was the last time that someone like utterly embarrassed themselves, like in front of me, like, I can't even remember, like, it just doesn't make the cut, like alter yeah. memory. So I'm a huge proponent of like making a lot of, you know, a lot of bad jokes and then you can crack good ones. 
it's the same thing with, with writing, um, you know, writing a lot of garbage and having like some really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Qual yeah. They, they, they say quality comes from quantity. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? You got to, as, as Chandler would say, you got to darken the page, right? Just mm -hmm. darken the page, put something on the page. Don't worry about what it is. Uh, you know, do morning pages if you're a fan of morning pages, but do, do whatever, just get something out uh, and, and, and clear out the mediocre from the pipes to allow the great stuff to come through. Mm -hmm. So what's your, um, what's your process for like injecting humor in your, in your writing? Do you have like specific like strategies or techniques? Um, like how does it play with like, with your storytelling? I think for me, it really is like, I, <laughs> I say, I say this, I say, I've been saying this a lot more often, uh, a lot more often uh, because I'm just now getting this, but in a lot of ways I was raised by television, right? My mom being a single mother and working a lot, I watched a lot of TV and there's just something about watching a lot of, especially sitcoms, comedic, you know, comedic television uh, and comedic movies where you know, the whole formula of comedy being one plus one equals three, right? It's you, you think one thing's coming and then something else comes instead, which scientifically is how dopamine is released when you have this, you know, reward attribution error that happens and all this stuff. And so uh, for me, I think it has just been uh, this, this honed skill of always looking out for the funny part of something otherwise completely mundane. Right. Like, so I could go through a piece of writing that I wrote with no comedy in it. And as I'm right, reading, you know, reading back through it, just asking myself line by line, what could be funny about this? What could be funny about this? Like, what could be absurd about this? There's an amazing show uh, that I think was on for two or three seasons. It may still be on Hulu. I'm not sure. Uh, but I think it's called Man, Man Seeking Woman. I think it's called Man Seeking Woman. And it's this amazing show where basically they take this guy, he's, you know, kind of, uh, he's, he's recently broken up with his, his girlfriend. He's alone now. He's trying to date again. He's, you know, younger guy, probably mid late twenties. Um, and, and they basically take all of these really uh, uh, normal situations and say, how can we exaggerate the shit out of this situation, but normalize it, like make it normal where nobody thinks it's weird. So, so there's, so, so there's one scene in like the, I think it's a second or third episode where he gets invited to a party by his ex-girlfriend, the one he just, that just broke up with him. And he's like, Oh my God, this is, she's invited me to a party. Like maybe it's, you know, maybe something's happening. And so he goes to the party and he runs into his, his best friend outside before they go in. And his best friend says, man, it's so cool that you're here. Like, you know, with, with her having a new boyfriend, that's going to be here. And he's like, Oh, she, she has a new boyfriend. He's like, yeah, you didn't know. She's like, that's why we're here. We're celebrating the two of them being together. And he's like, Oh man, I didn't know that. So what I'm picturing happened in the writer's room is the writer's room goes, okay. So guy gets broken up with by his girlfriend, gets invited to a party at her house, gets to the house and finds out from his best friend that she has a new boyfriend. What would be the craziest fucking thing we could do to exaggerate the situation? And what do they do? Turns out her new boyfriend is Adolf Hitler. Like literally Adolf Hitler, he never actually died in the war. He's like 90 years old and he is the actual Adolf Hitler in a wheelchair and she's dating him. So, so like the, if you're sitting around in a, a writer's room and you say, what could be the, what would be the worst possible thing that could happen with your ex-girlfriend uh, to find out she's dating Hitler? Boom. That's hilarious. And if you just watch how it all plays out and nobody thinks anything weird of it, it's like, oh yeah, Adolf, he's great, man. Super misunderstood. And it just becomes this whole thing where it's just like so exaggerated, so ridiculous. But to me, that's where great comedy comes from. Finding things that you would never connect the dots on and you connect the dots on those things in a way where you create something brand new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I mean, one of the, one of the elements that I think, you know, you can inject humor in writing or in anything in your talks um, really love the idea of like specificity, but like random specificity. And it's a great exercise because you really have to know, um, you know, what your audience thinks and what your audience believes. And so you give like random details and like you, you talk about something and you say, you know, you give the location, the time and all these things, like give a really clear picture, you know, like how people like, um, and it's funny cause you're from Florida, but you know, there's so many like Florida jokes and, you know, you could tell a story and you know, that's something absurd. And then you add that, like it was in Florida and then it just changes like the whole thing. And like the more you add and the more specific and you use like, um, you know, like cultural references or like even like stereotypes, you know, in the case of Florida, uh, it just makes it like, it makes the mundane hilarious. 
And um, one of the things that I, <laughs> when I was younger with my dad, I often like joked around, like is literally like making like things that aren't even funny, funny just by saying like, oh, like this thing is like, oh, like you could totally tell that's like 2004, like, yeah, like a gray rainy, like May afternoon, like 2004, like just like absolutely random. And then you picture that thing and you know, it's so random and like, it just makes it funny, even though it's not. So like adding all this stuff and, you know, like exaggerating, like starting from these like references that people have, it's just like makes everything hilarious. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's some basic, uh, you know, comedic principles you can use in that too. Like one of the really, really easy ones is like the rule of threes, right? And in comedy, the rule of threes is so huge where you present two things that are legitimate uh, that, you know, back up whatever it is you talked about. And then one that's absurd and, mm -hmm. and catching people off guard with that last one. That's absurd is what makes it funny. So yeah. I did, I did an episode of my, my podcast, a solo episode of my podcast, and it's about how to create more magic in your life and in your business. And it was just kind of talking about the, what I believe, I, I believe I'm a spiritual pragmatist. So I, I take like the, the supernatural kind of view, but also the like pragmatic, you just got to do the work kind of view and, and bring them together. But I wanted to illustrate uh, how magic and the word magic has been so pervasive in our lives and in like kind of the zeitgeist of our language and everything else. And so I, I'm saying like, you know, magic is such a big part of our life. You got, you know, big magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. And I pop up a picture of, of the, the cover of that book. You got, uh, you've got the magic, which is a part of the secret series. And I put up that one and I said, and then of course you have magic Mike. And I bring up a picture of magic Mike and I superimpose my face over one of the strippers. And so it's like, I got my point across that the word magic is very much a part of our, our society, but then I anchored it in with that third thing to make it funny so that yeah. it's not just me delivering information. It's going to make yeah. it more memorable. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then if you, if you think about it too, like a, a little more deeply, it's like, what's also hilarious is that like, you're giving magic Mike way more cultural importance than it actually deserves, which is right. really hilarious. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah, little, <laughs> little things like that can be really powerful. Little things like the power of threes and callbacks, mm -hmm. just, yeah, little things like that can really be helpful, but just look at when you're writing stuff. If you want to inject some humor, read what you've written and just ask yourself, what could be funny about that thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially like once you have like that one absurd thing, like in your rule of three, what's also what's also really effective is like circling back and having like these landmarks. And that's, you know, I mean, that's one of the tools they use in like stand up comedy or like so that's even something like if you just want to be like a funny person in conversation, like texting your friends, it's like, you know, they're like these like funny things that that happened or that you talked about that during other conversations or at other points in the conversation and you like you tie those back and uh you know uh i mean one example i was I, I sent a meme to a friend the other day and she was like and it was like it was a meme about like adam and chris and it was actually it was pretty funny it was talking about adam who has like uh like philosophy degree and like has a hundred k in debt and like chris was like uh what was he like uh um an electrician and like makes like 80k and like got paid to like do his apprenticeship and anyways uh so my friend she's like oh yeah i know an adam and i'm like oh i know a, i know an eve i'm like oh wait that's not what we're talking about and then i said i i, I thought maybe i don't know we could set them up on the blind day like throw in a snake somewhere just like watch the world burn yeah i love that yeah so the, so connecting so connecting the dots between between well-known cultural references and things that have nothing to do with that cultural reference, but that you can't, you could find a parallel, right? Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it. And so what, what happens is over time, the more and more you prime yourself for this, the more and more you consume, uh, you consume things around this area, the more you start connecting the dots of like, oh, I see what they did there. I see how they connected those dots. And you start priming yourself to look out for that stuff in the real world. Mm -hmm. It takes time, but it's something that becomes much more natural the more you do it. Yeah. And I find just like, um, you know, just even like stepping a little outside, like the, the, the realm of writing, like I find, you know, one of the most valuable skills or maybe qualities you could say um, to have as a person is to be able to like uh, be entertaining and be funny and be like um, appreciated by different groups of people who have like different um, sets of references. And so knowing, you know, popular culture and, you know, you know, subcultures, just having like vague knowledge that allows you to communicate. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you're always talking about the same things, but to different groups of people. Like if I go to, um, I don't know, like uh, if I go to a party and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's just like 
blue collars let's say like i'm not a blue collar i'm you know more into like books and stuff and like i hang out with writers then you know i can still communicate my ideas but like knowing the references knowing their culture then i can be funny and get my point across much more effectively than you know if if my perspective is limited by you know my own community or my own communities Absolutely. Yeah. It really gives you a breadth of being able to, uh, to pull from all these different things to create something. A thousand percent. I agree. Yeah. So before we wrap up, um, what are you, what are you currently working on? Uh, what are you writing? Any, any project? Yeah. I mean, the majority of my writing now, uh, is, is in my podcast. So I, uh, so my podcast is, uh, it's called the Jason Goldberg is ruining podcasting podcast. Uh, so you can find it on, uh, po- uh Apple podcast, Spotify, and then the video version, which I totally recommend because it's the full experience uh, is on YouTube. But, um, but what I do with the solo episodes is I script those out word for word, right? Cause I really want to, it's basically, it's more like a monologue actually than it is a, a podcast. And so that, that, takes a lot of my, my writing effort because each one of those episodes is 20 to 30 minutes. So I'm probably doing four or 5,000 words for each of the podcast episodes. So that's kind of where the, the bulk of my writing is, uh, is happening right now. Mm, cool. And do you have any like book project that you, that you're planning on writing in the future or? Yeah, I, I actually do. I have, I really want to write one of, one of my um, gifts, skills, whatever you want to call it, is that I tend to be, at least from what I hear from people, is that I tend to be really good with creating metaphors. And so I have been thinking about creating uh, the, the, little big, the little book of big metaphors, uh, which is basically just you know a small book, but it has metaphors that you can kind of directly go to anytime you're having a certain thing going on. So if you're stressed or you're anxious or you're you know, uh, fearful of being seen or you have social anxiety or you want to put your message out in the world or somebody upset you or whatever it is, you can just flip right to a set of metaphors that can help you shift out of that nice do you have any example off the top of your head oh my god i have, I have a ton i don't it's like one of those things where it's like name your 10 favorite songs ever and it's like <laughs> god i know i, I have a hundred songs i love but which of the 10 uh so one that i was just remembering this morning uh when i was thinking about what i want to do for my next podcast um is <laughs> it's more of a distinction it's a distinction and, and a metaphor together but it's this distinction of uh, that we can show up in any given moment as a uh, nuclear reactor or as a first responder. And so the, the metaphor and the distinction there essentially says, if you look at a nuclear reactor, if you look at a nuclear reactor plant, there are teams of people that are hired to manage this thing. Because if anything goes wrong and this thing explodes, it's literally going to kill everybody and make the land unusable for life. So when something goes wrong and something's volatile going on, a nuclear reactor explodes and potentially kills everybody. On the flip side of that, you look at a first responder, police, ambulance, paramedics, fire. When they get to a scene and something crazy is happening, you have never seen people more calm and cool and collected. They show up on the scene. There's chaos going on. There's accidents. There's people who are bleeding and bones are broken and things are on fire. And they are just very, very laser focused. Say, okay, here's the thing that has the highest priority. We need to take care of this person first. This one's not hard as bad. We can put them in triage. And they just are able to survey the situation. And so it's a beautiful gift for me to look at myself and say, when something's not going my way, am I showing up as a nuclear reactor or as a first responder? And, and understanding that I have a choice in the moment to choose which of those two perspectives I come from. So that's one example. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, cool. So we're going to wrap this up. Is there um, where, where our listeners can uh, connect with you? What's the best, um, what's the best place they can go to, uh, to get acquainted with, with your work? Yeah, you can find me on the corner of Sunset Boulevard. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so you can find me. Instagram is probably the best place. Uh, I am at the Jason Goldberg, T-H-E, the Jason Goldberg. Uh, and uh, my podcast, you can go to thejasongoldberg.com slash podcast. And uh, you can find all that stuff there. And I'd love to continue the conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and talking to us today. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you.